we should see inflation cooling off as we get closer to 2025 and into 2025. But there are some factors at play, like inflation in the US, it's less driven by housing than in Canada, although you know housing is a factor there. Food inflation is more important in Canada than in the US. So there are some small differences like that, but overall, it's pretty much the same picture, you know, taming like the last mile for the fight on inflation is always the hardest one. And this is where we're at. Hello, welcome to Strictly Money, your go-to source for navigating your most important financial decisions. I'm Sejal Patel. On today's show, we are going to talk about the economic outlook here in Canada, but the U.S. as well, and what it means for stock markets on both sides of the border. The U.S. market has uh, no doubt seen some pretty impressive gains and a lot of it driven by the Magnificent Seven. You're not really seeing that here in Canada. Canadian investors are in a bit of that wait and see camp and and really hoping for an interest rate cut. So we're going to discuss it all with my guest today, Sebastian McMahon. Sebastian is the chief strategist and a senior economist at IA Financial Group. He is a wealth of knowledge and one of my favorite people. So I know you are going to enjoy what he has to say as much as I do. Let's get started. Hi, Sebastian. Welcome to Strictly Money. Nice to see you. Hello, Sigil. Nice to be here. How have you been? Uh, I've been well. <laughs> you? It's, uh, same, same here. All the winter's almost over, so getting better. Yeah, yeah. We've had um, we've had unusually warm weather. It's just interesting. Right now, as we record this, I'm hearing thunderstorms. I never expected that at the end of February, but here we are. Yeah, I'm in Quebec City, so no thunderstorm, but it's uh, about plus five outside, something like that. So we're like six weeks early, I would say, on the uh, winter schedule. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's hope we don't see any storms. I'm expecting them, Sebastian, but let's hope we don't see any uh, before be, before spring comes. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> so I want to talk about the economy and the markets today. And, you know, Sebastian, it just, it just feels like the last two, three years, everyone's been kind of holding their breath. Like the, the pandemic just seemed to turn everything upside down. And it just feels like people are wondering whether we're finally out of the woods, whether the economy is on stable footing, whether inflation is tame now, and, and whether we'll see interest rates finally cool off. Are we out of the woods? Well, we are getting closer to being out of the woods for sure. Internationally, uh, we're seeing the U.S. economy that's even picking up steam now. The, the, the economic surprises in the U.S. are getting much better. We were surprised last, I would say, November when we had uh, an update on the data coming from U.S. agencies about excess savings from households. We realized that there was much more savings on the sidelines than even we had expected. So this is of course, a tailwind for the U.S. economy. And also, U.S. government is spending a lot. The primary deficit is still growing, but we're starting to see, you know, green shoots in the U.S. economy in the sense that, you know, this is creating momentum. Like this morning, we had investment numbers uh, coming out uh, for U.S. businesses reaccelerating. We see the consensus, which is upgrading the forecast for 2024 in the U.S. to about 2% growth, which is, you know, not extraordinary, but still pretty good. So, you know, U.S. economy is 
leading the way. Uh, Canadian economy, it's more of a muddy picture. Mm -hmm. I would say we, we keep talking about the recession per capita because demography, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. demography is is keeping the economy alive in Canada. We've had a few negative quarters over the last year, but still momentum is okay. But, you know, per capita, we see the weight of interest rates that swing on, uh, on Canadians. Uh, we're seeing less excess savings drawdown. So I would say that, you know, the thing, the situation is not so bad, but yes, we're still can start to think that we're getting out of the woods. Yeah. Um, we haven't actually had a technical recession, have we, Sebastian? We've we've skirted that. No, we, we, we skipped it. In the US, actually, there was one in 2022, but it was very short-lived. I would say that, you know, you can't really pick your definition of a recession, but it seems that now the definition has become vaguer. I would say that in the past. So, we can, you know, the one that I like to use is the real recession is when you, I, pretty much everyone knows someone who's lost their job because of economic conditions. And if we use that definition, then I can say that it's very unlikely that we do have a recession in Canada in 2024. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point because there there is a technical recession, right? But People feel it differently. And, and when you lose your job and you can't pay your bills, that feels like a recession. It's, it's much more personal. Yeah, exactly. And now what we're seeing, we're seeing anecdotes of you know, restaurants that are seeing much less, you know, much fewer clients for dinner, for lunch, and now people are going for breakfast. We see that, you know, some restaurant owners are even saying that, you know, they're kind of, uh, they kind of feel bad about showing the check at the end of the, uh, of the meal because, you know, food inflation and wage inflation has been, uh, has been pushing the costs higher. So people are more sensitive to that. So it's not really a recession per se, but we are seeing an adjustment in the lifestyle that is coming from, you know, the post pandemic effect. Yeah. So, Let's let's talk about inflation because I think that's on a lot of people's minds. In the US, it looks like it, it came in a little bit hotter than expected. Canada seemed to be a little bit cooler. We are seeing that trend though, Sebastian, come down. What I am noticing, and I think most people notice here in Canada, is that food inflation still isn't where people want it to be. And and the big one is really housing. Yeah, exactly. So we've always been saying that getting inflation from eight to three percent would be easier than from three to two percent because of the stickiness of you no know, wage inflation, shelter costs, and all of that. And this is what we're seeing. So recently, in the last few weeks, we saw U.S. inflation kind of coming in a little bit hotter, Canada a little bit cooler, but still both are around three percent. So we should have some of that volatility uh, for the first half of the year, and we should see inflation cooling off as we get closer to 2025 and into 2025. But there are some factors at play, like inflation in the US, it's uh, less driven by housing than in Canada, although you know housing is a factor there. Food inflation is more important in Canada than in the US. So there are some small differences like that. But overall, it's pretty much the same picture, you know, taming like the last mile for the fight on inflation is always the hardest one. And this is where we're at. Yeah. Can I go back to this food inflation? Because do you expect it to be more sticky, Sebastian? And, and I'm asking this because weather is always one of those unknowns, right? It, it, like if we're seeing the weather impact that you and I just talked about earlier, if there's drought, that's going to affect food 
and may, perhaps shortages. The other thing that I've been certainly paying attention to is just transportation with the Panama Canal. You know, there was talks of droughts there, which means these ships are going around, you know, the long way, which actually adds to transportation costs and that gets passed on. What are your thoughts on, on food inflation and where it could go? Yeah, well, we've been talking about climate change for many decades. And now, you know, this is how people feel uh, outside of just looking outside the window. You know, they feel the impact of climate change, the, the, the food inflation. So we know that during the pandemic, some, some companies were tempted and they acted on raising prices much faster than they would have usually. You know, that's why inflation feeds inflation. Some businesses were able to, let's say, front load some of the price increases for the next few years into one or two years. So we've seen some of that. Uh, we've seen some, you know, I don't want to say greediness, but some different behavior from grocers. So we've seen some of that. But mostly what's behind was, of course, Ukraine, Russia. This uh, this price shock was uh, was huge. Now the world is readjusting to that. But climate change, all of the factors that you rightly mentioned here will continue to be at play. So we need to, to, to anticipate that in the future, food inflation likely will stay hotter than what we've been used to, sadly, in the past. I also want to talk about housing, Sebastian, because something just doesn't add up for me. We know that higher mortgage interest costs are adding to inflation. So I understand the rationale behind Bank of Canada saying, well, inflation's high, so we're not ready to cut. But you're not going to bring down the mortgage costs unless they do cut. So what what am I missing here? And does the Bank of Canada need to think about this differently? Yes, you're not missing anything. It's really the issue is exactly this. And the Bank of Canada is already starting to talk about this because the Bank of Canada has one target. They need to bring total inflation sustainably to 2%. This is their mandate. They don't get to pick the inflation measure that they target, you know, it's by law, but they can prepare, you know, set the table, they can bring the narrative to something else. And this is what they've started to do starting late, uh, in, late in 2023. A few speeches that we've heard from the bank, from the governor, McClam, we've seen that in the monetary policy report that they're starting to look under the hood, and they're starting to document the impact of shelter on inflation. And there was a very interesting chart in the latest monetary policy report for those who are inter interested in reading such things, <laughs> the reading that I do enjoy. They're starting to look at separating shelter to non-shelter component, and they, they come out with the conclusion that if you take away shelter, so everything that's led by demography, by the impact of higher rates on inflation, you get something that is below 2%. So the question that is begged here is, well, do they need to start cutting earlier? Is the job already done? Or are they choking the economy by keeping rates elevated? So all of this narrative is happening right now. This is why we think that they're setting the table for cuts starting this summer. Oh, that would be really interesting. And and I know we're going to, we're going to, um, we have charts on the mortgage inflation as well as the rental inflation. Mortgage inflation is up what? Some like, 200% if I'm right in the last year? Year over year, it's 27%. So the way that inflation is measured, they look, you know, StatScan, they look at what's part of your typical basket. And, you know, if you pay more for your mortgage in terms of interests, because interest rates are higher and you had to, you know, 
renew your mortgage, then you're paying more for the same service. So it is inflation. So it's right that it's included into inflation. So this is a small part of the basket, but also rents are accelerating still. You know, we're taking up close to 8% now and the pace of growth is accelerating. This is a lot about one demography. The Canadian population grew by 1.25 million people over the last year. So more demand for rents, but also higher rates make housing starts and building permits you know, fall. So there's less supply, more demand. So the Bank of Canada really can't do anything surgical about that, but they certainly can help by starting to cut rates and making some of those projects more economically possible. So it's a complicated situation, but they're setting the table, we feel, by talking about the right things for rate cuts that could be coming, even if inflation is not back at 2% yet this summer. You mentioned something there about housing supply, and this is the other impact that higher rates have had, right? Yeah, we are not seeing the investment being put in to build more homes because it's more expensive to do that. Are you seeing signs of investment falling because of higher interest rates? Because that's something, unfortunately, none, nobody really wants. Yes, we are seeing you know higher cost of capital leads to less investment and also more muddy economic picture also leads to less investment. So in the U.S., we have also seen the new uh, the, the housing starts slow down. You know, there's less uh, there's less incentive to move when you know you have a 30 year mortgage in the U.S. and if you have to sell your house because you change your job, you go live in a different city. Whatever happens in life, then you know you would have to have a new mortgage that has a much uh, higher rate. So we're also seeing the U.S. market that's a bit uh, cramped right now. But you know, if you look at business investment in the U.S., we're starting to see the green shoots with the economic picture becoming clearer. So, you know, all of these things, you know, it's it's complicated. It's not something that the Bank of Canada has, you know, executive power on, but starting to cut rates this year would, of course, go a long way to start rebalancing all of this. Okay. Sebastian, I want to get your thoughts on the U.S. Uh, market and, and the economy and why it's more resilient. But uh, first, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, BMO ETFs, whom uh, without, I wouldn't be able to do this show. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. Are you looking to enhance the level of cash flow from your investments? BMO ETFs has you covered with their Covered Call ETFs. These ETFs generate cash flow from two sources, the dividend yield from the underlying securities and the premium generated from selling the call options. BMO Covered Call ETFs strike a balance between generating cash flow and participating in the growth of rising markets with your experienced portfolio management team and effective strategy with over 10 years of history. BMO ETFs is the largest covered call ETF provider in Canada, covering 13 covered call ETFs across a range of strategies across regions, countries, and sectors. Visit BMOETFs.com to learn more. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Welcome back. I'm here with Sebastian McMahon. Uh, Sebastian, we've been talking about Canadian markets and, and U.S. markets, uh, I should say the economy, 
The U.S. economy, though, has been resilient, as you mentioned earlier. Why is that? Well, they're, they're doing multiple things, right? It's a more, I would say, diversified economy. You know, the weight of energy like we have in Canada here, the banking sector are you know, less. You know, it's a more diversified. This is where, you know, big tech, of course, resides. So we're seeing lots of, lots of innovation. Uh, in fact, we're seeing productivity in the U.S. So GDP per hour worked in the U.S., this is accelerating right now. And in Canada, in fact, it's contracting. So we're having an economy that's less dynamic. And one of the some of the reasons for that is we have uh, more small and medium-sized enterprises in Canada, which tend to be less you know, capital intensive. And also the large enterprises that we have in Canada are more like of the oligopol, um, oligopoly style, like the big banks, uh, for example. So you know the dynamism of the U.S. economy is interesting. But if you look more short-term, excess savings drawdown in the U.S., it's more vigorous than what we're seeing here. And of course, the stimulation from the, the government the IRA, the, the Inflation Reduction Act is contributing there also. So it seems that many things are going right at the same time in the U.S. So we're getting what we call U.S. exceptionalism for now. When the pandemic happened, or at least during the pandemic, you just touched on savings. Were Americans able to save more, do you think, on, on average than Canadians? Yeah, they saved more than Canadians. And uh, there's a culture of consumerism, I would say, in the U.S. We see that, you know, the drawdown in the savings rate in the U.S. was a bit more aggressive over there. So this is, you know, they're deploying, let's say, the ammunitions more quickly in the U.S. than what we're seeing elsewhere in the world. Let's talk about uh, when we can expect rate cuts then. I, I think um, you mentioned this. I, I think most people agree we are going to see rate cuts in 2024 on both sides of the border. Uh, most people cannot agree, though, on when that's going to be. I've heard as soon as March, um, I'm in the camp of probably in the summer. Um, what are your thoughts? Maybe U.S. first and then Canada? Sure. So in the U.S., we think, and we're hearing a lot of pushback from the Fed right now about early cuts. So it's more like cutting later, not faster and later, just later for now. So we think two, three cuts by the Fed in the second half of this year makes sense. Maybe they can start before the Bank of Canada. Maybe they can start in June, but then after that, go very prudently about it. So two to three cuts in the U.S probably starting in June. In Canada, we think we have circled July 24th on the calendar just before because that leaves them more time to just set the table with the right narrative. We have a monetary policy report, new forecasts, everything on the July 24 meeting. So we think that would be the first one that they go. And then after that, every single meeting until the end of the year, so four cuts in Canada. So this is pretty much in line with market pricing. Market pricing was much more aggressive just six weeks ago. Now market pricing is pretty much in line with this affirmation. Okay. So if we are expecting those kind of cuts, and we know that markets tend to price ahead by somewhere around six to nine months ahead of the economy, we're not really seeing that play out in Canada, at least on the TSX. What do you think is going on? 
Well, the TSX uh, is more cyclicals-based rather than, you know, growth and big tech. So, of course, it reacts differently. But if you look maybe at the, the cyclicals in the U.S. or you compare the TSX to the Dow Jones, you see more similar behavior than when you look at the S&P 500, which is, of course, dominated. I want to say dominated, but a magnificent set, yes. I think, about 30% of the of the index. So, you know, it's a big footprint. Uh, but there are some good things happening now in the, on the TSX. Uh, banks are starting starting to show signs of life. Industrials are showing signs of life. Uh, energy is doing well. Transportation is another sector that's also starting to show signs of life. So when I talk with my colleagues, my equity PMs focused on Canada in-house, they're actually pretty confident that the TSX will have a good year. And we are seeing, you know, if we see the U.S. economy reaccelerate and the, US, the global economy being in a good place, you now cyclicals should, should do the job. So 2024 could be a good year for cyclical overall. Oh, that's it. really interesting. So cyclicals, um, if the economy rebounds, that would be a good thing. So would it be a good time to rethink some of the defensives? Maybe. Maybe it could be a good time to, to look at that. When I was looking at the U.S. stock market, you know, we always think about big tech and AI. But, you know, what's the next step for the AI revolution? So for now, it's chip makers. Uh, we, of course, the Magnificent Seven, you know, the big names like the Microsofts and the Apples and the Googles of this world. But after that, you know, uh, where the PMs are looking at right now is uh, where will we build these data centers? and what's needed to make those data centers happen. So, of course, you can think about servers and microchips, but they're, th they're looking at utilities. Uh, they're looking at industrials, you know, everything that's needed to build this infrastructure across the grid because those are very energy consuming. So it does bring utilities into the mix. Thus, defensives, you know, typically defensive names could become, you know, part of the AI movement over the next year or two. So things are getting pretty interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so the US, you mentioned the Magnificent Seven, uh, still driving much of the gains that we are seeing um, on the S&P 500. Do you, Sebastian, expect that to continue? Or, or are you starting to see some of the gains becoming more widespread? Well, we are starting to see more widespread gains on the index, which is good. And today, for example, you know, that we're recording, we're seeing small caps now having a good day. So we're starting to see more sectors participating. The logical expectation would be to expect maybe the equal weight index to outperform the S&P 500 until the end of the year based, you know, on this rotation story. But it's hard to discount the S&P 500 and big tech and AI. I, uh, right now, uh, still, you know, having some potential because, you know, there is mania possibility here. You know, if, you know, if the economy slows down, typically you want growth. If interest rates fall, typically growth does well. Uh, if a team becomes, you know, very widespread and retail gets very aggressive into it, like we're seeing right now with the chip makers, and, you know, there could be some legs. So I would say just being invested is important. Being overweight the S&P 500, and this is our view to overweight the S&P 500. I think this would carry you to interesting returns by the end of this year, but staying diversified, not putting all of your eggs in the AI basket, of course, is the prudent thing to do.
Okay, so let's talk about AI. I want to talk about NVIDIA in, in particular, um, because everyone's going crazy over NVIDIA as as the AI play. I was just reading, and this just blows my mind, that its market value is now $2 trillion, Sebastian, nearly as much as the entire Canadian economy. Can you believe that? It is uh, spectacular and the growth has been exceptional. And I also want to add that when they reported their earnings in mid-February, uh, the reaction was so strong to the earnings beat that you know the, 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 the stock went up 16% on the day based on an already high market capitalization. So that was the strongest one-day gain in market capitalization in the history of Wall Street. And it's just like a new Netflix that came out of nowhere. You know, they added to $280 billion on their market cap and Netflix is worth about $250. So that tells you how big it has become. Is it justified? Well, uh, it right now we're seeing a high multiples, but we're seeing growth that is so exceptional that it's hard to tell if it's justified so far. You know, as long as the, uh, the this uh, team of AI, just I don't just mean like the investor sentiment, but the economic team of AI, as long as we continue building the infrastructure structure for you know the world of tomorrow i think of course it's it's warranted that nvidia continues to see such strong growth you need to make a parallel with the 1990s then it was cisco that was at the forefront of the internet team because you know it's hardware first nvidia now cisco then cisco's dominance was strong until eventually a new technology came in less reliance on cisco was needed do we have something like that in the future i don't know i mean we're at the cutting edge of technology here. But for now, I think it's reasonable to expect chip makers to continue to lead the markets ahead. Is there a way then, Sebastian, for Canadians to, to play that AI story in Canada? Or are we just not really exposed to it? Well, there are little places that you can uh, that you can go to, and I'm not a stock picker here. So I, I consulted my, my, my PM colleagues, but they told me about Celestica, which is a Canadian name. Uh, they uh, they are involved in building the servers that are behind, you know, the data centers for everything that is AI linked. I was hearing about Telus International, who are involved in uh, data treatment for AI cal calculations. So there are a few pockets of opportunity here. But of course, if you're a retail investor through ETFs, you can invest in the technology sector in the US. If you want to cover the currency, you know, there are some edge to the Canadian dollar movements ETF. So there are ways to invest through ETFs. But if you want single names, uh, there's much less on the menu up here than down south for sure. Well, AI is um, going to be certainly a, a theme to pay attention to once again this year. It'll be interesting. Um, Sebastian, are there other themes that you are watching for in 2024? The cyclicals, again, you know, how we're seeing this resurgence of the, well, the leadership of the U.S. economy, Canada's economy, if we think that we avoid a recession and we reaccelerate in Europe, we already seem to be in a recession, maybe the economy is bottoming and after that, we re reaccelerate. So all of this means that a new economic cycle is 
taking shape. So when you have a new economic cycle, you want to be involved in the cyclicals. You don't want to uh, to, to just you know move the Canadian banks out of the way. You want to have some exposure there. You want to have some exposure to energy, to transportation, to industrial. So you want to have exposure to everything. So I would say that the broadening of the investment landscape is pretty much where we're looking at for equities. If you look at uh, what I spend most of my day looking at now, it's the market expectations about what central banks will be doing. So this is what's driving a good part of the market right now. Consensus now is in line with what we think makes sense. So we're comfortable adding some risks here. Okay. Uh, Sebastian, we're almost at the end of the show. Now, before I let you go, I always ask my guests three rapid fire questions, more personal on the personal side. So uh, I know you weren't expecting this, but uh, are you ready to play? Of course. Okay. First question. What is the best financial advice you've ever received? I would say when I was young, the best investment I received was to invest in yourself first. It's not just about what it's about your quality of life overall, for sure. It's about your potential future income, for sure. But your financial wellness and your overall wellness, if you're better prepared to face the world, of course, financial literacy is a big part of that. Invest in yourself first. Be a reader. Read everything that you can. Learn. You're not going to regret it. I love that one. Um, and it's a common one that I often often get from guests. And I think because, you know, I always try to tell people you are your best resource. So you have to invest in yourself, right? Yep. Okay, then what is the worst financial advice you've ever received? I think it's it's a thing. It's not really an advice, but it's a statement that I hear often is that, uh, you know, this time is different. Uh, yes. And this time is different in investment and in, uh, in the world of macroeconomics or even in your personal life, you know, where we know that there are some regime shifts in life in the markets, but often, you know, they're not as common as we think. And generally when they happen, they happen much slower than we expected. So thinking that all right, this time is going to be different, I know better than the markets, the economy, or my friends, or life in general, typically that's a bad advice. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. And you know what I have always found too is that um, that fear and greed, there, there's just a cycle. We don't seem to learn from it. It just shows up a little differently and it's a different event, but it's quite common. And I think it's because we do let our emotions get in the way um, overconfidence. We often think that we can uh, predict and, and outsmart the market, which is, as you know, very tough to do. Of course, of course. Okay, last question. If you could create one rule that everyone had to play by, that would help them improve their financial well-being, what would it be? I always say the same thing. So sorry if you follow you know, what I said in the past, always the same thing. Investing for your retirement should be the most boring thing that you do in your life. You need to invest regularly every week, every paycheck, every month, a set amount. You need to invest in diversified funds. You need to make sure that you don't try to time the markets. And you need to, to, to just have this plan, talk to your financial advisor, make sure that you know the plan is the right one for you and then get your thrills elsewhere that's that would be the advice no one will have on their their tombstone like i beat the market 
But you know, there's a lot of financial literature, academic literature that shows that it's actually pretty hard to beat just regular investing in a balanced fund through time and just letting compound interest do the job. So it's the power of compounding. Yeah, power of compounding. If you want to have some drill, use maybe 5% of your assets and, you know, invest in speculative things. If it works out, you have a good story to tell at the next cocktail party. And if it doesn't work out, then, you know, your financial wellness is not out of the window. So I would say boring is good for long-term investing. Boring is good, you know, and we don't have to complicate. I think people like to overcomplicate investing when it's, it's so not necessary. Exactly. And you, but to have the right program, you need to know yourself well. You need to have some help. So usually being, you know, having an advisor that helps you, usually that's, this is the recipe for success. And if you want thrills, do something else. <laughs> Sebastian, thank you so much for your time. Great pleasure. Yeah. And um, I will mention for viewers who are listening or watching, you have a weekly update and a podcast. Is that right? Yep. It's the In Your Interest podcast. You can find it everywhere podcasts are found. And also we have the weekly economic review. You can find it on ia.ca slash economy. You can just subscribe and you'll have access to that one video per week. No spamming, promise. <laughs> Wonderful. And we will, we will put those in the show notes. So thank you so much again. Great pleasure. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for listening or watching this Strictly Money episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future shows. And I'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay well, stay wise, and stay wealthy. Stay wealthy.